0: Hello, listeners. I'm Paige Smith with Below the Radar, a knowledge democracy podcast. Below the Radar is recorded on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and tsleil peoples. On this episode of Below the Radar, our host, Am Hall is joined by Renee Zaklikar, Surrey's inaugural poet laureate from 2015 to 2018. She joins us today to discuss her epic poem and story, Brahma and the Bigger Boy, book one of the Thought J. Bap series, this was a 10-year undertaking, which recently came out on June 12, 2021. I hope you enjoy the episode.
1: Hello, welcome to Below the Radar. Delighted that you could join us again this week. I'm really excited to have Renee Saragini-Saklikar with us today to talk about her new book, Brahma and the Beggar Boy. Uh, This is a a fantastic piece of work. I'm about halfway through it, and so I'm still working my way through it. But as others have already stated, it's steeped and simmered in the tradition of fairy tales. Speculative fiction meets rhymes and chants. Uh, Steve Collis, a professor of of English at SFU and a wonderful poet himself, uh, he writes with Brahma and the Beggar Boy, Renee. Sarajini Jeannie Saklikar has resurrected the epic poem for the Anthropocene merged it with the visionary qualities of speculative fiction and woven diasporic threads into a new and necessary act of world making the future was such a long time ago but maybe it's not over yet. Throw the dice, jump the fence, cross the threshold. This is a a wonderful doorstopper of a book, ambitious in scope. I can already say that having been through the the parts that I have. Uh, Welcome, Renee. Thank you so much for joining us.
2: My pleasure. It's an honor to be here.
1: Renee, maybe we can start with you introducing yourself a little bit.
2: Hey everyone, I'm so happy to be in conversation with AM today for Below the Radar. My name is Renee Sarah Jeannie Sacklacar. I'm a poet. I've trained as a lawyer, but I don't practice right now. I teach creative writing at SFU and VCC, and I write poetry, mainly epic poetry that is epic in scope and really long. So my current project is a multi-volume series. The first book of which is Brahma and the Beggar Boy, that I think we're going to be getting into among other things, and it deals with some of the issues that as a poet. I've been really grappling with, as we all have, which is climate emergency, inequality. And for me, a feminine-centered woman of color um, a way of reimagining epics. So it has really dominated my life for the last 10 years, and I finally got to book one. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, that's that's amazing. Wondering, you know, your everyone has their own circuitous journey to become a writer, and and uh, as you mentioned, um, you're you're trained in the law, you you practice law, amongst many things. I'm wondering if you can sort of we can begin with you sharing your story about how you came to becoming a writer.
2: Yeah, it is a great question for all creators, I think. So my childhood was in some ways on the margins. I was born in Pune or Pune, India, came to Canada as an immigrant settler and and a citizen, became a citizen with my parents. And so we moved from St. John's, Newfoundland to Northern Ontario, Quebec to Saskatchewan, and finally settling in BC in New Westminster and writing became a refuge. I'm quite a shy person but I perform like a lot of immigrant settler children you know, particularly from South Asian backgrounds you perform for family for community, for others we wanted to be good to Canadians and conform and I think a lot of that pressure on introverts like me meant that writing was a refuge, it was a sacred secret place where I could work out the world. It's taken me a time Time to figure this out. If you had asked me this 20 years ago or 30 years ago, I, I would have no ability to articulate this. Uh, I've been through the writer studio at SFU, which was life-changing, and kind of was able then to take on the mantle of writer, having, you know, done the law thing, which I'm very proud and happy to have done. So writing came to me as a child, but I had no confidence or or self- awareness that, oh, this is what writers do. I was always jotting things down. And I also want to add about my parents. My father passed away very suddenly in 2002. My mom is now in long-term care. My sister and I are going through that process that so many do, especially in a pandemic where we're managing her affairs. She's still mercifully very with it, but you know has a lot of health problems and going through her things. So we're sifting the, the detritus of this immigrant settler saga. And it's both wonderful and heartbreaking, right? And what I wanted to say was looking through my parents' archives on the margins often unacknowledged, although they had many good things happen in their life. And I'm wondering if you could maybe relate with your parents' own story that when we're not part of the mainstream, like who gets recorded, who gets archived, who gets remembered, and they were always scribbling, they were always writing. I had no conception of them as creatives, as writers, but in fact, they were. And so this is very poignant to me. How did I become a writer while I was always writing?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I know that, that story resonates uh, really strongly with me. I think about the South Asian diaspora in BC, where many people uh, worked in the sawmills in northern BC and uh, lived these rich lives of community drama and arts and culture and politics, but rarely rendered the legibility of those stories. And so, as some of these elders uh, pass away, uh, my uncle sawmill at Fort St. James, um, you know, think about um, that story of arrival and living here and all of that and how. Uh, those stories don't get told, but how rich they were in in so many ways, and and have a lot to teach us. Um, uh, I'm going to jump to some of your earlier work, Renee, because I was there when you were launching Children of Air India. We did a wonderful event at SFU, and I know you collaborated with Mark Winston in uh, listening to the the, the bees. Uh, wondering if we can begin with that first. Uh, You, of course, were were publishing in in various places prior to those books coming out, but wondering if you can speak a little bit to both of those projects, which have had a really remarkable life in the world.
2: Thank you. Thank you for asking. You certainly were there for me uh, with this momentous book that I didn't want to write. My first published book... Children of Air India, Unauthorized Exhibits and Interjections, published by BC's own Nightwood Editions, and I've stayed with them for all my other books in 2013. Um, this was the book I didn't want to write, but I had to write. You know, I can't go on, I must go on. And it, it's about the bombing of Air India, Flight 182, a story that's so heavily documented and yet completely erased. So this juxtaposition of... In the media and completely marginalized again, I think very poignantly relates to what you and I were talking about earlier. We have the whole saga of the indigenous experience, which is the framing mother root experience. And then us coming in as uninvited settler citizens, settler immigrants, settler refugees, we bring these tales of heartache that we do unto others and that are done to us. And so this diaspora of Forgetting and remembering this constant pull, who is remembered, who gets forgotten. I didn't want it. It was so painful, a story, the bombing of an airplane off the southern coast of Ireland, my aunt and uncle on it sadly, and so many other families. And then the way it's portrayed with the racism against Punjabi Sikhs, particularly Punjabi Sikh men. And how was I going to tell the story that didn't weave in to these narratives that I didn't want any part of? Oh, I just ran away from it for so long. And it's really a credit to SFU, the writer's studio, to mentors, to people like you, that I finally I had to do it because what what was happening is it was shutting me down. And I think creatives can really relate to this. You don't want to take something on, but you have to, that push-pull of, I don't want to, but I can't, but I have to. And then it just, that overwhelm just shuts you down. So I found a way through that, through documents and kind of became known as this docu-poet where I look at documents, text, history, which typically isn't covered in, it is now. I I do think I was a bit of a game changer along with many, you know, there's always cycles, people are always doing it. And then there's a forgetting, again, forgetting, remembering, but bringing history back into established Canadian poetry, that's what Children of Air India is and was. I mean, people often characterized it as a kind of memoirish poetry book, but really, and it's only now that I can say this, I certainly couldn't at the time, which is maybe just as well. I was writing Children of Air India for the history books. And indeed, you know, I always tell my students now that, that I instruct, you never know, you got to just do the work because you never know where it's going to take you. And so this book went out into the world and lo and behold, Owen Underhill, who I, Owen Underhill, who I did not know that we all know so well now, he was sent my book, and he read it. And, you know, I'm very honored and humbled. He had a, a big experience with it. he, It spoke to him. He sent it to a composer in Ireland. And of course, Ireland, particularly the west of Ireland, was where the plane went down in that rocky, abandoned Atlantic Irish Sea. I mean, it's full of ghosts and story. And they liked the book and they approached me and with the help of many, many people, not least of which was SFU Woodwards, and SFU, and the Canada Council, and the Irish Council for the Arts. It was a huge collaboration, Irish-Canadian. We created an opera called Air India Redacted in 2015. And boy, that was was truly life-changing. And it leads to the bees in this way. I have said to my collaborators with Turning Point Ensemble, with SFU, with my Irish colleagues, it was as if... Creating that opera of this momentous book allowed me to just let it all go. And I no longer had to be the carrier of this tragedy of my own family. I don't want to speak for any of the other many families. So it led me to the bees because I was always collecting bee poems as a very restorative thing. And I was scribbling this epic. This was my fun thing, the thing we're ultimately going to talk about today. This was my, like, I don't want to write about bombings and and race and everything on point I want to imagine something else they all came back through the back door but in the interim was this very restorative collaboration with Dr. Mark Winston listening to the bees which is essays and poetries and very much looking at climate change and so here all these strands weaving in you know personal history and grief climate change of course but it, beca- it starts to become like this urgent thing when you start looking at bees and yeah mm-hmm. um, <laughs> Amazing. It, it, it was just sort of a lead up to this you know mm-hmm.
0: uh,
1: when you were talking about Air India I was thinking about mm-hmm. how you know uh, I was in elementary school in Williams Lake BC and of course when that Tragic uh, event um, happened, and the way it landed down, there was you know so many different types of uh, politics playing out. But at the way that you receive it as a young person, you know, I was called a terrorist by my classmates, and you know, pushed around in the library and that type of thing. In terms of the way it played out on the on the ground of where you don't really fully understand what's what's going on, and uh, having it uh, brought back to life through poetry through opera and to have a reconsideration of that time really um I think it resonates with a with a lot of people and it's amazing that it had the the life that it that it that it had and it's so interesting to hear about that it gave you a sense of liberation and freedom that it that it did circulate in that in that way that you could get on to other Uh, Projects as in terms of uh, of so so this book that's out now Brahma and 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 the beggar boy really uh, you know ambitious in scope and how how did the idea for it begin to formulate I know that it's been sort of simmering for ten years there must have been a kind of how did you come up with the the idea for it because not everybody goes around writing epic poems of this this scope.
2: Oh, well, it's, it's a great question that I ponder many a day as I work away. You know, it's a series. This is book one, Brahma and the Beggar Boy. And I think the central way it came about was the question many makers and creators will, will reveal, will say, it's no secret. What if? And for me, it's what if the mistakes we're making on climate and equality and inequity, Right. The world's 80% and we the happy 2%. What if we don't get it right? And it, what, what is going to happen? And everything about the series, which is actually called the heart of this journey bears all patterns, thought J. Bap, And there's a great website, chock a block full of things. So thoughtjbap.com. I'll talk a bit more about that, but it, it produced book one, Brahma and the beggar boy. Um, everything arose out of that. And it was one of those spiraling things that I think speculative fiction writers and sci-fi writers and probably climate change researchers, because I've really dipped in a lot with that to inform my world building, when you world build, suddenly it becomes vast, right? The micro and the macro, you want to balance it. And poetry and the epic form... Perhaps ironically, but magically became the form for me. It was the container that I could put all this in. But it all came out of what will happen if we don't get it right? And what will happen to who survives and who doesn't? And for those who survive, that may be on under the bridge, in the lineup, at the wall, not wanted, not accepted, not with the right papers how will we the brown people of the world the othered of the world on the front line as some of your guests have said on this podcast of what climate change means in terms of the water the food the clothing the implements and that led me into this whole concept of making as a form of survival and and then the thing just took off but it was like notebooks i'm sitting here in my office surrounded by boxes and boxes of documents and notebooks and fragments and sound recordings it is my life's work i I don't like thinking it, but it, it's, that's what it's turned into, you know.
1: Mm. You look at um, other fiction writers like uh, Amitav Ghosh, who's written very eloquently about climate change and sort of a, a call for fiction writers to grapple more directly um, with these questions. I'm wondering what this form of a, of, of a book, um, what kinds of freedoms does it accord you beyond a more traditional storytelling technique so, you know, as a writer, you have a set of choices in terms of, of um, deciding to do the, the, the form of a, of a book. And I'm wondering, what was it about um, this way that, that provided a form of, kind of liberation for you as a writer or a direction that you wanted to go in?
2: I think it allows for layers. So what I am as a student... And I always want to be a student of the craft, you know, don't you think? Because you're a writer and a very good one. Once we forget that we're beginners always, then, then the muse deserts us, punishes us. So as a student of the craft of the epic, what I am slowly discovering is how much it can contain and the layers it can contain. And I talk a bit about this at the end of the book, and I'll share a little bit now, not to get too nerdy on the form part, and then maybe we'll share some poetry, but... I think what poets have always discovered, what writers have discovered, this paradoxical alchemy, where you give yourself a constraint, a rule, a boundary, you emerge with more freedom. Mm -hmm. The more constraints and forms I explored to put into the container of the epic, the bigger I was able to explore the layers. So... We have the macro themes, climate change, global inequality, inequities, uh, female-centered mythology, and then we have these very personal lives through sound fragments of characters, and suddenly it became epic, which is opera, which is poetic form, which is sonnet, which is blank verse, which is jingles, which is ad fragments, which is texts of documents, uh, which is an interview I heard Robert Fiske give, it all gets through the form poetry, somehow leavened and chosen. And you're so right about the choices. I mean, this is the the craft, right? What will serve the story and the poetry best? And I don't actually, funnily enough, while I'm creating, it's just about sound for me and rhythm and image. I'm not really thinking about narrative. The narrative sort of comes to me. I'm like a receptor. And I always feel a bit embarrassed about talking about that part of it. But honestly, um, the poetry is a gift. And it comes from somewhere. And my job is to be a craftswoman and humble and learn. And the more I work on the practice of the craft, the gods take care of all the
1: rest. Mm-hmm. Uh, would you be willing to, to share a passage at this point?
2: I'd be mm-hmm. so honored. Let's start with a key poem where we meet Brahma and the beggar boy in this world dominated by the evil consortium, an economic, agricultural, industrial mega corporation. And this location is Pacifica, which is a loosely imagined America on the West Coast. The summons. Brahma's a locksmith. She's a time-traveling locksmith, and she works for Consortium on Contract, but she's like a Robin Hood, and, and she steals from them, too. The summons, Brahma on a job. Every siren and perimeter sounded an alarm. On that day, arrival, although no one knew who they were, small woman with a boy. She from around here, asked the settlers one by one. Their voices even-toned, their eyes stone-cold, gaze fixed on Brahma's well-oiled leather satchel. Usurpers, what response might they expect? Settlers on perimeter's edge, they waited. Brahma's slant smile, radiance as a foil, under her brown hands, hidden from sight, her pippin file, her keys and her drill, codes, spells, chants to unlock, any treasure. Street beggars, boys with brooms, girls with swords, from their bruised mouths, parched lips, masks torn away. Until the rains arrive and we survive. Wash your hands, use your sleeve. Trust us now, you'll never have to grieve. At the fifth gate, transport drivers lounged, troop guards to inspect, their hands to scrounge. Brahma on contract, her face smooth as silk. That beggar boy trailing behind that last drop of
1: milk. Oh, beautiful. Beautiful. So good to hear you read your work.
2: Thank you. Thank you. That's a great honor
1: um i'm wondering uh about as you framed uh the story and began to work through it um how you developed the the characters in the book if you could speak to to some of them uh you began with with brahma but there's there's many others
2: there are so this is very much a work where the characters arrive and they're not fully formed and they give me little clues and hints and usually through these language fragments and I wake up early in the morning as I did this morning and I have a pencil and I have a whole process I have a composition process and I scribble out these lines because you know the subconscious depending on our belief system is it is it history if you're an atheist which you know I have a lot of respect for although I'm not an atheist but is it history? Is it practice? Is it coincidence? Jung said there's no such thing. It's the subconscious working it out. Um, or is it the muse? Is, is it some divine spirit saying, you know, here's your gift and work the craft? So the the characters in this book are, are really uh, the heroes are female. Brahma, who is a semi-divine goddess. She doesn't yet know her origins. That's coming in a subsequent book. She's a craftswoman, she's a laborer, she's a worker, and she's doing the best she can by cheating on consortium and being a kind of Robin Hood for her people who are resistors and seed savers. There's aunties, you know, really very much informed by all the aunties I didn't have and didn't know as separated from my extended diasporic family. They are mendicants and midwives, and they're fabulous, and they often speak in verse. Hidden in the middle of the book is a very key character who's born in the year 2020. And I'd love to read uh, um, a poem about her when when the time is right. And her name is Dr. Ellen, Abigail Ellen Anderson, Dr. A.E. Anderson. And she's born in 2020 in this dystopian world that's sort of one parallel removed from ours. We might fall down a portal and find ourselves in that world. I don't know. But it's similar to ours, but, but not. And born in 2020. She um, comes from a wealthy family. She's very idealistic. She's called to become a doctor. She becomes a doctor as climate change gets worse and worse, far worse and far more quickly and far more complex with eco-catastrophes layering on in ways that the people in this world never expected. So by the time she's in her 30s, things are really bad. She's working for a consortium, as many working people do, but they don't like the fact that she's idealistic and trying to vaccinate third world country um, or developing country or indigenous people or people on the margins because although they intellectually want to help resources are so scarce there there's a, a measuring out of vaccines and medicines she is radicalized and she joins people she never thought she'd be with and, and then there's a poem I'm itching to read about her, her you know her radicalization and she starts vaccinating against the uh, consortiums dictates and uh, many things happened. A few good, mostly really bad.
1: Uh, Rene, the, the the looming consequences of the climate emergency clearly um, hover over the book, and in, you spoke a little bit to the the form already. But you know, what form of resistance can a poetic verse offer us in this time? Like, what what's the capacity of this? A uh, form as it's taken that can take us to a new place regarding these questions because they're obviously all around us.
2: Yeah, it's such an important question. It has so many layers. I can only begin to respond because I'm still grappling with that. You know, I think it's about finding a way to connect to story to give us the belief that we still can act. So Although it may sound a little Pollyanna, I have come to see that making is a form of resistance. And for me, what is my craft? I wish it was more sewing and pottery making and baking bread. And all these people who do that figure prominently in my community of makers. Because I know that when the really bad stuff hits, if you don't know how to cook and mend a seam, and dig ground, and grow, and save seeds, we are in big, big trouble. So it's it's like I'm telling myself what I'm going to need to know. But in the meantime, right now, as someone who cares passionately about what is happening, both on the justice side, climate justice, and in terms of what I can do as a human being, it's about connecting to hope. And so although this is a tragedy, make no bones about it, It's also very hopeful, right? Brahma's motto is let all evil die and the good endure. And I don't know, in our world of of neo-modernist, nihilistic, poetics, it's deliberately a bit archaic. It's it's a little bit of a, a rallying cry against, you know, the nothingness of nihilism, right? What is the good? Are there absolutes anymore? And what is evil? And, and so Brahma is a very interesting figure, as is Dr. Anderson. Now, Dr. Anderson is 100% mortal. And she makes some just terrible decisions in her life that have awful consequences. But she also does one or two exceptionally fantastic things. And I'm very, very fond of Dr. Anderson. And so she shows that, you know... Her class bias is something she has to let go of when when she's faced with this survival question. So what can we do? I think we can connect through hope, to hope, through action. And each of us has our own calling. And a side thing from that is guilt. Like I find in this pandemic, I've experienced a lot of guilt for being where I am so that I have the benefit to work from home. And I'm not one of those care workers that's getting up at 4 a.m., mainly women of color, to go and look after my mom, who I couldn't see for over a year. And I literally couldn't see, right? And we all have our stories. So Dr. Anderson arrived. She was percolating in my subconscious. And boom, the pandemic hit. And I'm alone a lot. And she just took over, you know, Mm -hmm. this character.
1: I'm wondering if you could uh, read uh, a little bit more. Thank you.
2: Excited to do so. So here's the first time, book one of the series, Brahma and the Beggar Boy, that we meet the good doctor. We don't know her name yet. The good doctor, as posted on cyborg number six, to whom it may concern, fluttering in the wind, rags of paper, although scorned, And fearful of. I found myself and sought them. Marauders, vagabonds, traders, riffraff, brigands, invaders, survivors. They save seeds in glass jars. At the bridge of locks cut off, waxed paper still redolent of honey. And the flowers, documents, and escape. A series of borders. Once would have been unthinkable. Now we are close bond enough. I've discovered colony collapse. I've discovered the despair of queenless. I've seen oceans overflowing, then sink. Smelt ice, the sound of it cracking, then. I've hugged close glass vials and my microscope. I've told beggar boys and girls, this is a chalice. They laugh and point. They help me barter for glass. Signed, Dr. A.E. Anderson.
1: <laughs> Beautiful. Beautiful. Renee, I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit to some of your influences um, around the book. You know, we have examples of, of people writing in this form in contemporary times, but there's probably also very ancient influences that go into this book that probably resonated with you as a reader uh, in some time, but wondering if you could speak to that.
2: Your questions are treasure. Yeah. So, you know, when I started writing this, I was maybe typical of literary uh, writer's A little bit, you know, looking down my nose at uh, a certain kind of speculative sci-fi fiction, principally because I felt very alienated as a woman of color maker. It's so heavily dominated epic fantasy, uh, traditionally, not now. Now there's an explosion that's fabulous. But at the time, you know, certainly 10 years ago, when I was starting to get aware and, and woke to speculative fiction, I was a bit put off by the white maleness of it. And that forced me to look up people like Octavia now, there's no question that Tolkien, um, George R. R. Martin, and then going way back, Homer, I'm reading a fabulous translation of Homer by Emily Wilson. So it's a, it's this female scholar who has retranslated um, the Odyssey, and it is such an influence. It's all in blank verse, which also figures a lot in my epic. So there's also the cultural aspect, Um, but I, I wanted to say Octavia Butler. She really stood out for me. When I was doing my initial research 10 years ago about, well, how am I going to approach this speculative fiction thing? You know, there's the epic, but then there's speculative fiction. But of course, the more I read of women of color practicing Nalo Hopkinson and so on in this field, it actually led me back to the sort of three mythic strands in my own being. My dad, one of the first South Asians, ordained in the United Church of Canada for all its terribly conflicted history on in Truth and Reconciliation, and um, my father's family, Lakshmi Brahmin Hindu, so all the Vedic, great Vedic epics, the Mahabharata and others. And then, of course, my mom's side of the family, a Sunni Muslim, so the Western colonial takedown of the Arabian Nights and Arabic poetry and the long saga of Ghazals and Persian and, urdu poetry so i'm i'm this is all swirling around me and principally it's me having a bit of fun with language and trying to subvert these forms that have traditionally been dominated by by men milton certainly shakespeare dante beautiful beautiful dante but you know <laughs> there's so much to say about my friends, John and Dante. And so I don't, you know, the hubris is something I'm like, no gods, don't punish me. But yeah, kind of also that juxtaposition of push-pull. Yeah, actually, uh, Saclicar as well, you know, writing the epic. So uh, those are all the influences. There's just so many. There's Don DeLeo, DeLillo, the names. Um, on my website, I have a whole list. There's Frank Herbert's Dune Um, There's Richard Adams' Watership Down. You know, the more I thought about it as a child, I loved these books. I never saw myself in them. There were no women Mm -hmm. of color populating these heroic sci-fi epics, but I was determined to see myself in them. And now Mm -hmm. I've created
1: one. Yeah, I think Vikram Seth had a, a book in in verse, The Golden Gate, like a the long Holy time G- ago, must be yeah. in the '90s or something. Yeah, he absolutely
2: <laughs> did. Certainly, certainly he did.
1: Yeah. So, so, so this is the the first book of a series, and so I'm imagining that you're already working on the next one. Uh, oh I, yes. I know you don't want to uh, tell too much or look too far into the future, but um, wondering what you could speak to in that regard.
2: I would love to. I mean, here I am in my office. These are all my composition and structural notes for book two. And the big manuscript is underneath. I have rough manuscripts for up to 68 books in truth book one which i think clocks in at 360 some pages or just under or 330 some pages um it's emerging of what was originally book one and two mm-hmm. so right now book two is what was originally book four and at the end of this book you know we go through the saga brahma shapeshift she's a demi god she's a locksmith she has the keys and codes to circumvent consortium's control of the seasons through these seasonal portals. And the rest of us have to manage in whatever dimension we are. So um, at the end of the book, Dr. or in the middle of the book, Dr. Anderson, who meets a It must be said a tragic end. She does one good thing. She adopts another little beggar girl uh, named, and she gives that beggar girl her name, Abigail. And Abigail has a whole series of adventures in part two of this book that you have that we're talking about, Brahman, the beggar boy. And Abigail hooks up with a scholar named Bartholomew, one of the few positive male figures in the book one. And they have a child, and that child's name is Raphael he who heals, and book two will feature Bartholomew and Raphael and Brahma. Of course, she's always weaving in and out.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, wondering if you could read a, another part of the book if you're if you're willing.
2: <laughs> I would love to. Um, I'm going to read. Having spoken about her, Abigail and Bartholomew and. They have many adventures together. Uh, Abigail doesn't want to follow in her adopted mother's footsteps. This is tragedy, you know, upon tragedy. She's very attractive. She's adopted. So she is not of the blood of Dr. Anderson, but she's very much brought up by Dr. Anderson's auntie, Auntie Agatha on the farm and brought up to just be away from all these troubles. But of course, climate change trouble just will not let us escape. It's everywhere. And the earth demands Abigail become a resistance fighter. And ultimately, she does. It's a speculative fiction story. So she finds a cracked android that her auntie has been saving with a message, of course, Star Wars music can play now. Um, she finds this message on this cracked android and and sighs and realizes, oh, I have to get into this. I'm, I'm called to do this. And she meets up with a scholar, Bartholomew, and they become resistance fighters and seed savers. And eventually, they conceive a child. And I'll read a, a sonnet about that. Abigail conceives her child. And our great enemy, the sun, a star, heartbreak away, paths of tribulation, winter letters, dear Bartholomew, you are the most beautiful man I have ever met. Our wayward ways, our loving ways, come back. I love the sound of your pencil on cream paper. In the room called Allspice, Lemon Peel
0: Steps.
2: Two moons foretold that night. Dull knives, chill blames. We had found charms once on Tambeline Road. Girls, if from Tower Juniper were to... We knew nutmeg, if moldy, were poison. Means to light a fire, boil water, soft rags. My cervix dilated. We held hands, breathing that cherry red coat, that open field meeting.
1: Beautiful. Thank you so much, Renee, for joining us on Below the Radar. Brahma and the Beggar Boy is out with Nightwood Editions, and uh, I'm positive this is going to have a great life in the world, as well as the books uh, to come. Thank you for spending a decade on this, Renee. This is uh, going to have a great life in the in the world. Thank you so much for for joining us.
2: My absolute pleasure and privilege. Thank you, Am.
0: Below the Radar is a knowledge democracy podcast created by SFU's Vancity Office of Community Engagement. This has been our conversation with Renee Saklikar. Head to the links in the show notes to learn more about her work. This is going to be the last episode of the year, as our production team will be off for the winter break for a few weeks. Below the Radar is going to return in the new year, but in the meantime, we have over 150 plus episodes for you to catch up on. You can also stay up to date with Below the Radar by visiting us online at sfu.ca slash voce, as in Van City Office of Community Engagement, or you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at SFU underscore voce, or on Facebook at SFU voce. Thanks again for joining us on Below the Radar, and we wish you a restful season.